find on page 955 of the Church Bibles. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband should not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as I concession, do not command, uh, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Sorry. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot, cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. But it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the mark of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who is free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You are bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if you and if oh, sorry, and if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. 
This is what I mean, brothers, that the appointed time has grown very short from now on. Let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Well, as we think about the passage that Shelby Joe just read for us, let me start with a question. That is, what, what in your life would need to change in order for you to better serve God? We're to ask that question in a slightly different way. What is it in your life that seems like it's always getting in the way? What's the one thing you're always striving to change? What's the circumstance that you find yourself in that keeps you from being content? Uh, Is it your job? Maybe you're overworked or underemployed or just unfulfilled, waiting for retirement, hoping to make a career change at some point? Maybe it's school. If only you could get through school and get on with your life. Until then, you're just sort of holding your breath and biding your time. Maybe it's your singleness. If you could only find a spouse, then you'd be good. Uh, Then you'd be able to focus your energies on serving God. Then you'd be happy. Or maybe it's your spouse. Right? If it weren't for him or for her, then you'd be set. Right? But they're so they're so demanding. They're so needy. They're so unhelpful. Maybe it's the kids or the house. Right, but whatever it is, once your circumstances change, things get better, then you'll be content, then you'll be able to focus your energies, not on changing this thing, but on serving the Lord. So what might it be for you? What comes to mind sort of immediately? What makes you say, all, all right, Lord, but first let me... It seems in the first century church at Corinth, they were struggling with some of their different life circumstances. Uh, This church was full of people who had recently become Christians. Uh, For many of them, their spouses had not. And so they had questions. What 
what needed to change about their present circumstances? Did God expect them to divorce their unbelieving husbands or wives? If so, should they remarry a Christian? Should everybody just stop being married altogether? What about their jobs? Some of them were servants. Should Gentile believers be circumcised and begin to live as Jews? How does being a Christian affect the way we think about our present circumstances? Well, that's what the Apostle Paul is addressing here in the seventh chapter of his first letter to the Corinthians. And the answer that he gives us might surprise us. We are prone to be discontent. It seems like it's human nature to always be looking to change something so that we can move forward, so that we can finally live the way we think we should live. But Paul gives us a very different perspective in this chapter uh, in terms of how we live out our lives in light of the gospel. There's a lot of ground to cover, uh, as you probably saw. We just read 40 verses. Uh, What I would like to do is just cover it quickly and just look at three things in particular. Three good things that Paul tells us about our lives. Three things that need to be clarified. Because we might be tempted to think they're not good. Uh, So first, let's look together at the goodness of marriage. Then we'll look at the goodness of singleness. And then finally, we'll look at the goodness of our circumstances. So I think you'll be helped if you have a Bible open. So some of the verses will be up on the screen. But because it's such a big passage, we're going to be jumping around a lot. And there'll be a lot of times when... I just say, hey, look there in verse such and such, and I think you'll be helped if you can look and read along with me. So uh, before we jump into those three things, marriage, singleness, and circumstances, there's just one issue that I want to clarify for us, one thing just briefly that that you might have wondered as Shelby Joe was reading that passage. Uh, Paul does employ a way of speaking here in a few different places in this passage that can create some confusion. So if you look there in verse 10, He says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. There in verse 12, he says, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. And then if you look down in verse 25, he says, now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. It seems like Paul's saying, look, this stuff here in verse 10 Uh, It's inspired by God. It's the Lord speaking. But this stuff here in verse 12 and verse 25, it's just kind of my opinion. It's me speaking off the cuff. You can sort of take it or leave it. Now, I think we're used to reading Paul's letters with the understanding that they are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so what Paul is saying is really God speaking to us. And so here it might seem like Paul's stepping back a little bit and inviting us to ignore some of his instructions if we don't like them. And so what is it that we make of Paul here and what he's saying? Well, it seems like the confusion might arise from Paul's use of the phrase, the Lord. When Paul uses that term, it's almost always meant to refer to the Lord Jesus himself. So instead of God the Father, usually Paul, if Paul's talking about God the Father, he'll just use the, the, the word God. Uh, he'll refer to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit. Uh, very often, not, not 100% of the time, but, but pretty close, When Paul talks about the Lord, he's talking about the Lord Jesus, the second person of the Trinity taken on human flesh. And so here, when Paul's talking about the Lord, he's referring to Jesus' teaching during his earthly ministry. So there in verse 10, he says, to the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. 
the wife should not separate from her husband. Uh, what he's saying there is he, he understands that actually what he's saying is exactly the same thing that the Lord Jesus taught when he was on earth. He's referencing a specific teaching uh, that Jesus uh, gave to us. Uh, most likely he's referring back to Matthew 19 uh, in verses 3 to 6 where we read this. The Pharisees came up to him, that is Jesus, and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Remember the Corinthians were going through a hard time. Uh, some members of the church were opposing the Apostle Paul in his ministry. And so it seems like here in verse 10, what Paul is doing is, is strengthening his case in their eyes by appealing directly to the words of Jesus, right? something that not even they would dare to disregard. On the other hand, there in verse 12 and verse 25, when he says, I, not the Lord, or I have no command from the Lord, he simply means that he's not referring to any sort of direct teaching from Jesus during his earthly ministry. But he's not saying that we can ignore him. You see there in verse 25, he says, by the Lord's mercy, he is trustworthy. Uh, at the end of the passage, Paul says, I, I think I too have the Holy Spirit. We have confidence that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us through Paul's words, and we would do well to heed them. He's simply acknowledging, for the, the purposes of clarity, places where he's directly calling on the words of Jesus and places where he's speaking to them directly as an apostle uh, of Christ to the church that he's planted. So I think that's what's going on with those slightly confusing uh, phrases there, and I want to get that out of the way so that we can uh, then plow into what Paul does say. And he, he begins here by talking about the goodness of marriage. And I think we can look at two things particularly that Paul says uh, are good about marriage. Uh, first, he says that sex within marriage is good. That might seem like a strange topic to raise, but it, it, it seems like the Corinthians actually had questions on this issue. If you look there in verse 1, it says, Now, concerning the matters about which you wrote... Quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Uh, we've already seen in our study of this letter that there, there, there was an impulse among some of the Corinthians uh, and some of the folks in the church to pit the physical world over and against the spiritual world. We saw that even last week, where some in the church were going to visit prostitutes because after all, who cares what you do with your body? It's the spirit that matters. Here, it seems like that same idea, that same impulse to split the physical from the spiritual was being taken to the other extreme. That because the physical and spiritual are opposed to each other, it seems that some were, were teaching that Christians ought to refrain from sort of all physical pleasures and, and impulses together. So some were saying it's better actually for married couples to refrain from physical intimacy. And especially for engaged couples to call off their wedding plans. Basically, the idea was that since the physical isn't what matters, the best Christians, the most serious Christians, will transcend the physical realm altogether and live without indulging their carnal desires. But Paul's saying that this is a fundamental misunderstanding of the role of physical intimacy in marriage. 
Uh, in fact, sex was God's idea. God created it to be pleasurable. He gave human beings the desire and the capacity for it. And in fact, the Bible uh, regularly celebrates it. So there in verses 3 and five, Paul, three to 5, Paul says something that would have been shocking to this male-dominated, sexually promiscuous world uh, into which he's writing. He says there in verse 4 that a husband has authority over his wife's body. It says there, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. I think most in the ancient world would have applauded that notion. It might sound a bit sexist and even oppressive in our ears, but, but the idea here is that, that a wife's body, in a, in a very real way, belongs to her husband. He has authority over it. But that's not all that he says. He goes on to say something that I think would have been shocking. He says, likewise... The husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. There at the end of verse 4. That is to say, intimacy in marriage is not a matter of power imbalance, where one partner's needs and desires predominate. What Paul is saying is that intimacy in marriage is a, a profound self-giving that's right at the heart of marriage. When a man and a woman are united together in marriage, a deep connection is formed such that the partners give themselves totally to one another. We saw that again back in chapter 6 where Paul reminds us that, that in uh, physical intimacy in marriage, the two become one flesh. The husband's body no longer belongs to him because he's given it to his wife. The wife's body no longer belongs to her but to her husband. Right again, Paul last week, if you remember, reminds us that our bodies are not our own. He says we've been purchased by God at the price of Jesus' blood, and now we belong to the Lord. Here, significantly, in the very next section of his letter, Paul says, but that's not it. As husbands and wives, you belong to each other as well. It's a reflection of what we saw last week in chapter 6, again, where, where intimacy in marriage unites two souls together in a significant way. If you put chapter 6 together side by side with chapter 7, it seems like what Paul is saying is that God owns us. And by instituting marriage, it's almost like he's sharing us with one other person. He's allowing us to have one human relationship that in some distant way mirrors our relationship with him, where we are so intimately given over to someone else that it's a faint echo of the, the ownership that God has over us. Paul's saying we shouldn't understand that sex is something unspiritual, but rather it's something profound and important and beautiful. That's why he tells them there in, in verse 3, the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. And there again in verse 5 he says, do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you might devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The idea is that intimacy in marriage should be mutually enjoyable and regular. Now, this is not a hard and fast rule. Paul mentions an exception there in verse 5. You could think of other things that might interrupt the sort of normal course of intimacy between a husband and wife, health issues, travel, things like that. And it's certainly not carte blanche for abuse or, or pressure. 
Right? Those kinds of things would circumvent the purpose of, of marital sex even more than abstinence would. But those exceptions aren't the point. The, the takeaway here is that sex in marriage is good and important, and so couples shouldn't normally abstain from it. Uh, there's also a sense in which marriage is meant in this way to help prevent immorality. That's one of the benefits of marriage. It's a, it's a huge concern that Paul has writing to this church in Corinth. Right? Corinth was the Las Vegas of its day, full of sexual immorality of all, uh, every imaginable kind. As we've already seen in our consideration of this letter, that the church was doing a lousy job of keeping that stuff outside the church. And so here Paul gives us God's ordained way of dealing with sexual temptation and desire. Faithful intimacy within the bonds of marriage. Certainly that's not the only point of marriage. That's not the only reason God designed marriage, but it's certainly not designed for less than that. Regular sexual activity was designed to be the proper outlet for our God-ordained desires. So there in verse 9, Paul advocates marriage for those finding themselves unable to happily and successfully abstain. In verse 36, he advises engaged couples that that their, if their physical passions were such that they were finding abstinence to be very difficult, they should go ahead and get married. Uh, there at the end of, of verse 5, he says, don't abstain for too long lest Satan come and tempt you. A marriage is good in part because it provides a healthy and beneficial outlet for those desires. Now, I'm aware, I'm aware that if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're not familiar with the Bible's teaching, this might sound extraordinarily restrictive to you. As we thought about last week, everything in the world around us teaches us that physical satisfaction of this kind is best found in with multiple partners and varieties of experiences. Most likely that's how the Corinthians that Paul's writing to had lived as well. Back in chapter 6, Paul mentions some of their past sexual experiences and the sort of different sins that characterized Corinth and said to them, such were some of you. But he reminds them that they were washed and sanctified. They were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. Friend, if the, if the Christian sexual ethic sounds ridiculously repressive and restrictive to you, the Bible would say to you that you don't understand how good and how powerful sex is. It's so good, it's so powerful that, that God puts boundaries around it for our benefit. Marriage is meant to reflect the way that Jesus gave himself sacrificially for his people. And so sex isn't meant to be a way that you use another person for your pleasure but rather it's a way that you give yourself in love and commitment to another. Sex is powerful, and so God puts boundaries around it for our good. Tim and Kathy Keller have written this. They said, The startling sex ethic of the early Christians was that sex is both a sign and a means for that total self-giving and that it must not be used for any other purpose. To engage in sex for any other reason was to misunderstand it. Granting access to our physical bodies must be accompanied by the opening of our whole lives to each other throughout a lifelong marriage covenant. Only in that situation, the early Christians taught, does sex become the unitive and fulfilling act it was meant to be. 
The Bible warns us against immorality because sex was meant to be good, because it's so powerful that it has to be protected. It's got to be used within its proper God-ordained function. And that means that within marriage, this kind of intimacy is very good. So that's the first thing that we see about the goodness of marriage in this passage. Uh, the second thing that we see is that marriage is meant to be a lifelong commitment. There in verses 12 to 16, we see Paul address the question of what to do if only one spouse in a marriage was following the Lord. Again, you can imagine the circumstance. A person in Corinth becomes a follower of Jesus, but for whatever reason, their spouse wants no part of it. I think some of you have experienced that in your own lives where you've come to Christ and painfully your spouse has not. But the question the Corinthians were asking was, well, should we stay married? Right? It's clear that if you're a Christian and you're choosing a marriage partner, you, you should, you must choose someone who's a believer. Paul mentions that even at the end of verse 39 where he, he says that she's free to marry whomever she wishes only in the Lord. That is to say, if you're a Christian and you're choosing a marriage partner, your choices are limited to other people who are followers of Christ. But what about people who were already married to people who didn't believe in Jesus? Was the right thing then to divorce that unbelieving spouse? Well, Paul's instructions there are in verses 12 and 13 are, no, in fact, you should stay married. He says, if your spouse is willing to live with you, don't divorce them. Now, if they want to leave, according to verse 15, there, there's not much you can do about it. You can't force them to stay in a marriage if they don't want to be married to you because you're a Christian. But Paul says, if at all possible, remain married. Stay in the marriage because you are one flesh. Your body belongs to your spouse. You have no right to take it away from them. There at the beginning of verse 39, Paul says that a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. That's how marriage works. The reverse is also true. A husband is bound to his wife as long as she lives. Right? There, there's a, a lifelong, one flesh connection in marriage that, that should not normally be broken and can only be severed by death. Uh, Paul encourages the, the believers there to stay in their marriage in order to have a good influence on their family. Now look there in verse 14. It says, For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. That sounds a bit strange to us, as if Paul's saying that you can be saved just by being married to a believer. But that idea, I think it's, it's clear in the context and the language that Paul uses, that idea of being holy is not the idea of being saved, but rather being sort of set apart from the world. That is to say, having a, a believing spouse or a believing parent means that, that, a, that a husband or a wife or a child who's not a believer will be exposed to the things of the Lord. Right? They'll, be, they'll be, in a sense, brought out of the world and in contact with the things of God. It's clear there in verse 16 that Paul doesn't understand that unbelieving spouses are saved because he says there, for how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Paul's saying a believer's presence in a marriage is a, is a good thing. It's a blessing for their spouse and for their children. It gives, it gives that unbelieving person a chance to see and hear the gospel regularly. This seems to be what the Apostle Paul or Peter is talking about in 1 Peter chapter 3. 
where we read this instruction to wives. It says, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that is to say they're unbelievers, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. It seems like the Apostle Paul is picking up on that same idea here. He says, stay in the marriage so that you might someday see your spouse and your children one to Christ. So there's a goodness to marriage that Paul identifies for us here. He affirms the, the, the value of physical intimacy between a husband and wife. And he tells married couples to stay together. Get married and stay married. It strikes me that that both of those ideas are fairly well out of fashion these days. Most people don't see the need to get married. It's just sort of the, the, the sort of last step when you're kind of bored or maybe about to have kids. And, and when they do get married, they don't see the need to stay married for very long. But the Bible's teaching is get married and stay married. But don't misunderstand. We need to move on and see not only the goodness of marriage, but actually the goodness of singleness as well. Uh, look there in verses 6 to 8. So here Paul's referring back to his instructions to married couples, and he says this in chapter 7, verse 6. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. That is his instructions to get married. I, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. So Paul says people should get married and stay married. Couples should be intimate and stay together in order to help fight immorality. But actually, he would prefer that people were just like him. That is to say, able to live happily as a single person, not being overwhelmed by temptation. Uh, to those who are either unmarried or whose spouse has died, Paul says, it's actually really good just to remain single as he is. He repeats that idea down there in verse 40. He says, uh, in my judgment, she, that is the single woman who doesn't marry, she's happier if she remains as she is. There in verses 37 and 38, uh, he says this. He says, whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. Right, so Paul's speaking to engaged couples, and they're wondering whether... Uh, in light of the fact that they've become Christians, they should go ahead and get married or not. And Paul says, look, that's fine. Go ahead and get married. But if you have your desire under control, he says it's even better not to get married. Now, why would Paul say that? He obviously has a very high view of marriage. We've seen it already in this passage. You read Ephesians chapter 5. Paul tells us that, that marriage is a great mystery given to us by God to help us to understand Christ's love for his church. So why would Paul, who's very pro-marriage, why would he say it's actually better to remain single than to get married? Well, in short, he says that being single frees you up to serve the Lord more. Look there in verse 28. He says, if you do marry, you've not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. 
Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. See, being married brings about concerns and distractions that are worldly. Not in the sense that they're sinful, but just they're the things of this earth. They're the the practical details of this life. Being married brings with it concerns and distractions. Paul says there in verses 32 to 35, he says, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman, engaged woman, is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. I think the concept isn't hard for us to understand. A married man is rightly concerned about his wife. A wife is rightly concerned about her husband. Both of them are are rightly concerned about their children. Again, there's nothing wrong with that. That's how the Lord has designed for marriage and family to work. But it does chew up a lot of bandwidth. It, It does take up a lot of time and emotional and mental and spiritual energy. Marriage brings with it obvious, necessary constraints. Your time is no longer your own to do with as you see fit. Your body is no longer your own. You have someone else's feelings and needs to worry about. Now, Paul's not saying that being single is easy and carefree. What he is saying is that if you're single, you have more control over how you spend your time. Paul assumes that a single Christian will take the time that he or she is not spending being married, devoting themselves to their spouse, and will instead reallocate that time to the things of the Lord. There at the end of verse 32, the unmarried man is free to be anxious about the things of the Lord. In verse 34, the same thing is true of the unmarried woman. There in verse 35, again, Paul says he's not trying to put a burden on them. His goal is to secure their undivided attention to the Lord. A married person, their attention is necessarily divided between the things of the world, the concerns of their family, and the things of God. A single person has more freedom to serve the Lord with their time. Their attention there in verses 34 and 35 can be undivided. They can particularly focus, according to verse 34, on how to be holy in body and spirit. So friends, single people are a great gift to the church. I think in general, churches do a good job of valuing marriage and families. And because of that, I think it's possible to subtly send the message that there's something wrong with adults who aren't married. And it's possible, I think, for married couples to become self-absorbed, to be so concerned with one another's interests that they, they fail to live like their single brothers and sisters in the church are family as well. But friends, if we take the Bible seriously, I think we should view the single folks in our midst as something like the the special forces of the church, the the elite troops, the army rangers of the congregation. 
They're ones specifically set aside with extra sort of bandwidth to devote themselves to the Lord, to the service of the Lord, and to the pursuit of holiness. And so we as a church need to make sure we celebrate the wonderful gift it is to our congregation to have single brothers and sisters who serve the Lord faithfully in our midst. Sixteen years ago when we began uh, the work at what was called Guilford Baptist Church uh, just around the corner, uh, we were trying to recruit people who would come with us and help us in the work. And it was, what we found was that single people were willing to come, and married couples and families were like, yeah, oh boy, if I, yeah. I mean, we could do that, but then we'd be at that church with our kids, and that would be awful, right? <laughs> but what we had was a, a small army of single people who were willing to say, I don't know if this is going to work, but let's do it. And they came, and they served. In fact, I remember talking to Marty Clock, and I was asking Marty and Barb, would you come out and help with this work? And they were like, we'd love to, but honestly, we're, you know, worried about our kids. And, and I said to them, look, you know, I've known you for 10, 15 years. If, if you guys don't come with your kids, no one's ever going to come with their kids. And thankfully, Marty and Barb came, right? But, but I had to, like, basically call in decades worth of guilt to get them to come with us, <laughs> right? Whereas we had this group of single people. Right? If you've been around a long time, you'll know names like Gail Smith, Tim Fainis, Aaron Pridmore, people who came out and joyfully served the church because they had extra time. People who were all married with kids now, but when they were single, uh, they used their singleness, their freedom, uh, to help get this congregation up and running uh, in the Lord's help. I can think of so many of you, single brothers and sisters, who have invested your time in serving the church. I see ways in which you're creating community, inviting families uh, into, your, into your life, discipling youth, praying, serving, coming on Sunday nights. I'm so grateful for you. You should feel like this church is your family, and you should feel appreciated and supported. And we as a church need to value singleness as much as the Bible does. Now, marriage and engagement, it works differently in our day than it did in Paul's. So we have to acknowledge there is a bit of a, a disconnect here. For, for the most part, in those days, you weren't responsible for finding your own spouse. Your marriage was going to be arranged. So there probably were not a lot of people in the Corinthian church who wanted to be married, but just hadn't found the right person yet. We probably have a number of different kinds of single people in our congregation. We have some people who hope to be married, but who, for whatever reason, aren't ready yet or haven't found that person yet. Uh, we have some who are engaged and who are waiting to be married. We have some who are single and don't intend to be married at any point. We have some who are married but uh, are no longer or have been married but, but are no longer so because of either the death of a spouse or, or divorce. But friends, whatever the circumstances of your singleness, Paul's instructions to you, brothers and sisters, are very clear. There is a gift from the Lord that comes uh, with with being single. There's, a, there's time to serve the Lord. But there's also a sort of gift of singleness that not everyone has. There's a gift that God gives to some of his children that allows them to remain single, sort of happily so, without being consumed by temptation. That's not an ordinary state of affairs. That's not something that, that every Christian can do. There in verse 7, Paul says, uh, each has his own gift from God one of one kind and one of another. 
Right? Paul wants everyone to be single as he is, but he understands that, that not everyone has that gift from the Lord. Some people aren't going to be able to be happily single. Right? They're not going to be able to abstain from temptation. But, but friends, if you have that gift, that's a, that's a great blessing from the Lord. That's a great blessing that you've been given in order to serve the Lord and pursue holiness. If you don't have that gift, then it's good to get married, yeah, if you can. If you can remain single, that's ideal, Paul says. But it's just worth noticing that for whatever reason you find yourself single at this moment, there's no virtue in singleness per se. Paul says that it's only to your spiritual advantage if you use that time well, if you use it for the things of the Lord. Singleness is only desirable if you focus your time and energy on being, as Paul says here, holy in body and spirit. So single brothers and sisters, I think it's good to stop and evaluate your time, your, the way you use your time, evaluate your priorities. Would you say you're leveraging the relative freedom that you have to serve the Lord, to, to study his word, to serve the church, to help others grow in Christ? Would you say that you're using your time to pursue holiness in body and spirit? And that's what it is, Paul seems to think is the, the particular benefit of your stage of life. Singleness is a good state if you use it to serve the Lord. And that brings us to our final thing to consider this morning. And we've seen the goodness of marriage. We've seen the goodness of singleness. Let's conclude by looking at the goodness of our circumstances. I think this is Paul's overall guiding principle in this chapter. What we see is that for Paul, this world, this life, and all of its circumstances are not ultimate. Look there in verses 17 to 24. Paul says this, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. If you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become the bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Paul addresses a couple of circumstances that seem to be perplexing the church. He, he, he talks about remaining where you are with respect to your sort of culture and ethnic background. There in verses 18 and 19, he talks about circumcision, sort of cultural issue that divided Jews and Gentiles. And he says, look, don't worry if you are circumcised. Don't worry if you're not. Why? He says, because in the big picture, it doesn't matter. He says, obeying the commands of God is what matters. You see that there in verse 19. He's saying, don't, don't sweat the less important stuff of your circumstances. Uh, there in verses 21 to 23, he talks about remaining where you are with respect to your employment status. Uh, he says to the, the person who is a bondservant, don't worry about your freedom. It's not the first priority. Right? If you can get it, great. But if not, it's not the most important thing about you. After all, he says, you're free in Christ. 
the freeman that you're sort of jealous of, he's a servant of Christ. You're both the same in Christ. The circumstances of your, of your sort of daily employment are not the most important thing about you. Then in verses 26 and 27, you see this principle applied again to the question of whether to get married or, and stay married. He says in verses 26 and 27, I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. Right, so Paul says, in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Well, what's that present distress that he talks about? Well, I think we see it in verses 29 to 31, and we read there. This is what I mean, brothers. I'm always glad when Paul says that. Right, here's the point. Here's what I, this is why I'm saying this. Okay, so now we're going to pay attention. This is what Paul means. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. You see, Paul wants us to live as we are right now. He's not saying it's a sin to change things. He says, look, get married if you need to get married. Right? If you can become free, definitely do it. Don't sell yourself into service. But, but he says, look, the most important thing is that you serve the Lord where you are right now. That's how you, be, that's how you can be con content in marriage and in singleness. That's how you can be content to remain a Jew or a Gentile, to be a servant or a free man. Paul says, the appointed time has grown very short. That is to say, we are all on the clock. The, the arrival of Jesus in a manger in Bethlehem 2,000 some years ago ha has ushered in the last days. The end is coming. This world will pass away. We will die or the Lord, Lord will return first. But either way, everything that that represents this life, everything that represents the circumstances of our daily lives, it's all going to end. And Paul seems to think that that fact should have a radical impact on the way we think about our circumstances now. That it should make us less concerned with the, the sort of pleasantness of this moment and far more concerned with things that have eternal value. It's as if the knowledge that we have a future it shines a light back on us and enables us to live well here and now. We as Christians don't have to be slaves to our jobs, our homes, even our marriages, because those things are not eternal. We can endure them differently. We can live through them differently. We can, yes, make changes, right? Paul's not completely opposed to that. But we, we live our lives now. We live out our present circumstances with an eye towards the fact that we are on the clock, that our lives will end, that Christ is coming back, that all things will be made new. So Paul says, don't be too concerned with the sort of daily details of your life. If you're married, remain married. If you're single, you can remain single. If you're a Jew, stay a Jew. If you're a Gentile, stay a Gentile. Don't waste your life. Don't chew up all of your mental energy rearranging the furniture. But rather, get after the business of serving the Lord. Get after the business of pursuing holiness. 
He's saying that the circumstances of our lives are not as important as serving the Lord in them. It's not as important as having the eternal perspective that Christ is coming back. So instead of seeking sort of endlessly to fine-tune the circumstances of our lives, glorify God in them. Friends, I think that's really good news for us to hear this morning. Because if you've lived life at all, you surely have regrets and disappointments. There's no way that your life has, has turned out to be exactly everything you hoped it would be. Some of us have had our marriages fall apart because our, our spouses were unfaithful or abusive. Some of us, if we're being honest, are the ones who caused our marriages to end. Some of us have floundered in our careers and squandered our money. Other of us, others of us have spent too much time getting ahead, too much time making money. Some of us can look back and see we failed to take a stand when we should have. Others of us can look back and see I created conflict at every turn. Right? We have health problems, difficult relationships, scars from past hurts, loneliness, despair, ways we've wronged others, ways we've been wronged. And brothers and sisters, the good news is that God is saying to us through his word this morning, those things do not need to be a barrier to you pursuing God in your circumstances. Those things don't need to be a barrier to you serving him with all of your life. Those things don't disqualify you in any way from pursuing him, serving him, and growing in holiness. Those things are real. Those things may be painful, but we don't have to allow them to be the most important things about our lives. They're not the truest truth about us. Whatever your circumstances are and however you found yourself in them, you can be sure that they're no accident. There in verse 17, Paul refers to it as the life the Lord has assigned to you. Brothers and sisters, our circumstances are not ultimate. They are simply the arena in which we live out our calling. So whether you're single or married, old, young, divorced, widowed, rich, poor, those things matter. But there's a very real way in which they don't matter in the end. There's a real way in which Paul says there in verse 19, the only thing that matters is keeping God's commandments, serving him, being holy, loving him. The only thing that matters in the end is living for the Lord. Whatever the details of your life, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, again, it's not that those things are irrelevant. Of course they're not. But but what's most important about your life and your circumstances is that the Lord is in them with you. There in verse 24, Paul doesn't just tell us to remain there. He says, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. You see, Paul wants you to stay in your circumstances, not alone, not in despair, but confident. That whatever it is that, that you find difficult, whatever your struggle, whatever your burden, whatever your sense of failure, God is there with you today. And so you can serve him and you can love him in those circumstances. Now, if you're going to live like this, I think you need to believe two things really clearly. You have to believe that God loves you. And you have to believe that Jesus is coming back. 
Because if God loves you, and you're certain of that, then you can trust him with the circumstances of your lives. You can trust that the things that seem difficult and painful, or maybe even worse, meaningless, are actually coming to you from the hand of a heavenly father who loves you. That strengthens us to be patient in adversity. That strengthens us to be hopeful in our trials and failures and weakness. That enables us to be in our circumstances with a God who loves us. And if Jesus is in fact coming back, then there's an urgency to our lives. There's no time to waste. We need to get about serving God right now, right in our circumstances today, not waiting for things to change so someday in the future we can serve him and love him. We don't have to spend all of our energy, all of our time making ourselves comfortable. We have a higher calling, a higher purpose. The only way you'll be able to live this way is if you believe that God loves you and that Jesus is coming back. And I'm struck that it's here at the Lord's table that we have this weekly reminder from God of exactly those two things. We are reminded of God's great love for us as it's demonstrated at the cross. There the Lord Jesus gave up his life as a sacrifice for us. The, the bread representing his body broken for us. The, the cup representing his blood shed for us. Jesus as a sacrifice for us, as our substitute, hung on the cross, proving beyond any shadow of a doubt that God in fact loves you and wants you to be with him forever. And it's here at the table that we not only look back at the death of Christ and the great love of God, but we also look forward. Our eyes are lifted to the future. We proclaim the Lord's death, Scripture says, until he comes. We are reminded here at the table that there are spiritual realities beyond what we can see, that there are truths that are truer and more important than the circumstances in which we find ourselves in our daily lives. And so we can live out our lives in light of all that God is for us and all that he'll do for us when Christ returns. So brothers and sisters, let's come to the table and be reminded of God's love, be reminded that Christ is coming and find strength to continue on in our circumstances. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we delight in your love for us, that you have assigned for us circumstances in our lives. You've created for us an arena in which we can serve you and love you and be conformed to the image of Christ. Lord Jesus, we praise you as the one who died for us. We see by faith your body broken for us, your blood shed for us, and we are convinced that our Heavenly Father loves us. Holy Spirit, would you help us to live wisely now uh, in light of all that we've seen in the word? We pray that you'd help us to be people who are devoted and undivided in our affection and service to God. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.